0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
3: See website for details.
0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock podcast with me and Peter as usual. Hello, Peter. Hello, Russ. I'm Russell of course yes and we have a special guest with us uh, for the first part of this episode episode 175 which is the general manager for the women and girls team at the Albion it's Polly Bancroft hello Polly welcome to the show
1: hi guys thanks ever so much for
0: having me good to be here excellent yeah really good to have you with us um we we've, we've bring you on at this particular point, we wanted to get you on anyway, but um, it's a particularly good time to get you on, I think, because there's a very big game coming up for the women's team, isn't there? The senior women's team um, on Sunday, and we'll get into the details of that in a in moment, but ultimately it's uh, the semi-final of the FA Cup. Uh, Arsenal drawn away, which seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? They say, what, why are there neutral games in the semi-finals? That's not fair. Um, the game's on Sunday. We'll talk about that in more detail later. But it must be a busy time for you at the moment, is it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it, it's always a busy time in football, isn't it? But I think it's uh, yeah, it's nice when the games come thick and fast. Um, but yeah, as you said, we've got a big game on Sunday. Um, it's live on the BBC as well, so. And um, we're expecting a, a big viewing audience as well as a lot of um, fans attending and we've actually got some of the girls academy and the women's under 21 teams um, coming up to support so it'd be nice to have a bit of blue in the crowd um, at Borenwood on Sunday.
0: Excellent yeah I'm hoping to go I'm still not quite sure if I'll be able to come free in time because I'm working during the day but I'm, I'm hoping to get along it's actually not that far away from me I'm in Enfield North London so um, it's kind of like a fairly short drive really and sort of about 20 minutes or something so fingers crossed yeah it's Meadow Park Boreham home ground for the men's team um, and uh, Arsenal's I think it's their normal home ground isn't it well. yeah that's
1: right yeah Arsenal women yeah. play their the time mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'll probably ask you about ticket details and all that sort of stuff a bit later on. But let's get on to sort of talking about your role in general. So we said the general manager for the women's and the the girls, um, encompassing several teams, isn't it? So can you tell us a little bit about your role in general and um, and what it entails day to day?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's the strategic operations of women and girls football at the club. So I obviously uh, the operations for the women's first team, uh, the women's under 21s and then the four girls teams within the academy. We have a vision at the club to be a top four WSL club. So we're currently writing a strategy to consider how that can be achieved both from a technical perspective, from an operational perspective um, on the field and off the field for all of those six teams. It's gonna take a big joint effort to achieve that because it's a a lofty target, um, particularly with some of the, the big clubs that we see in the league at the moment and the investment actually that's come since that vision was set. Um, So the the vision was set before Manchester United and to the women's game. We've seen Everton invest significantly as well. So when you put those up against Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, you know, it is a big target, but it's not one that we're shying away from. So, yeah, on a a day to day basis, I'm I'm linking them with the the marketing team, commercial, communications, operations to embed the female teams within the club and and really integrate and, and see where we can share knowledge and best practice. To help achieve that vision of, of being a top four WSL club, so uh, yeah, lots to do, but we're really enjoying it.
0: Yeah, you've got a smile on your face.
2: <laughs> so we're talking about the, the, the clubs, you know, the investment that sort of thing. It makes it puts it in context. What an achievement it was last season to come 6 does doesn't it? It's, I mean, those five clubs obviously, I right, think were the ones above us, weren't they? And then we were like top of the rest, which is pretty amazing, really. For yeah, for Brighton. Yeah.
1: Exactly. To finish top half for the first time in the WSL was a brilliant achievement and certainly one that we're looking to emulate again this season. But you're right, that that gap between sixth and the top four was 20 points. So it's a big, you know, there is a big um, step to be taken to get us closer towards achieving that. But, you know, why not dream? Why not, you know, have strong ambitions? So. You know, we're really hoping that the new facility at Lansing at the training ground will be a massive or play a massive part in helping us to keep the best talent and also to attract um high quality players as well throughout the pathway. So we're very, very fortunate and we're, we're probably up there in terms of one of the best facilities for women's sports, not just women's football globally. So, yeah, it really shows the investment from Tony Bloom and the club into the into the women's game and shows how serious they're taking it. But that, yeah, that is a massive card that we've got to play. Um, so we're looking forward to making you know, every use and opportunity from that building.
0: That's great. Yeah, very good to hear. Um, do, do you find secretly do you find it quite irritating that the big clubs have kind of got. Well, the ones that weren't already pre-existing as, as big sides like Arsenal, that sort of the Man Utd and Tottenhams have kind of jumped on board with this later. It's obviously good in general for the game, but is it quite annoying from an Albion point of view to see them sort of upping their game just as we're seeing the fruits of our labours come into play?
1: I don't think it's annoying. I think it's absolutely no. the best thing for the game. And actually there are other Premier League clubs that aren't yet investing as much and you'd really encourage you know those to do the same. Um there's still only 12 teams in the league so competition is is quite fierce and you know maybe in the next five years we might see that expand a little bit but um no it's just really good competition and you know we beat Tottenham a couple of weeks ago we beat Chelsea last season so it can be done um we've also taken points from Manchester City in the past as well so it's um it's certainly doable um even though it's difficult
0: yeah, and that, that win over Chelsea last season, the one-nil away win, wasn't it? Wasn't it direct from a corner, if I'm remembering correctly? What was, was that what it? Right? Yeah. it was, right? Yeah, an Olympic goal, apparently, it's called, because it happened in the Olympics once, Um, I mean, that was, I think a, that was a very long, unbeaten run that we broke there for, of Chelsea's very dominant at the time, while still are. But, um, uh, that must have been a proud moment, actually, and come, uh, coming at that time.
1: Definitely. Yeah. It was, I think it was really needed and it was the pinnacle of the season as well. Um, They've been on a a bit of a difficult run up until that point. Um, Yeah, and it was the the changing point within the season, really. So we went on to have an unprecedented, I think it was four wins in a row in the Women's Super League, which we'd not done before. Um, Yeah, so it was was just a great moment. And certainly those images will go up in the new training ground building, just to remind us of, of that moment last season. So, yeah.
2: Yes, it's so a sign it's, of, you know,
1: not many, not many teams will score against Chelsea. Let again, yeah. let
2: alone yeah. win against them. You know, <laughs> in their home ground. It's this. a sign of the um, kind of ups and downs of football, isn't it? Really, because wasn't it the week before we lost to Bristol City? I think who mm-hmm. were bottom, and then to go to win at Chelsea, who hadn't lost at home for so long. And it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a beauty of football, really. In a way, isn't it? That you know, one week you can lose to the team bottom, and the next week you can go somewhere and where they, they've literally not lost for so long and win one 0 And uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which makes it even sweeter. Right. Yeah.
0: And this season started pretty well, um, as well. We've left, carried on where we left off. I mean, looking at the table, we're fifth at the moment, aren't we? Um, so, so top half again. There's 12 teams in the division for anyone that doesn't know. Um, but i um, just sitting in just behind the, the, the big guns, basically. So, um, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs and Manu being the sides above. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's tight. Obviously, it's early in the season. So, um, we've got teams chasing us as well, but, uh, it's looking good to, to be top half again. Um, in the earlier stages of that, I mean, obviously there was a point we went top right near the beginning, which was fantastic, really, really good. Um, I know we you, you came to Seagulls Over London, you were a guest there, and I know at the time you were saying, I think everyone at the club was pretty disappointed with the lack of coverage on that, actually, um, when obviously BBC as well as Sky are now um, covering it jointly this season on the BBC's Highlights programme, which they have already been doing, Um, it seemed to be the emphasis was on the big clubs and what they were doing. And the fact that this smaller team had got to the top of the table um, was pretty much kind of passed over completely. I mean, they covered... The goal, uh, the goals in the game, and that was pretty much it, wasn't it? I mean, how frustrating must that be? It must. I, I know you don't want to say too much about it, um, but, um, but I mean, it's got to be pretty frustrating, hasn't it? That.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the TV deal as a whole for women's football in the league is is fantastic. You know, to get mm-hmm. over half of the games on TV um, is brilliant in terms of raising the profile nationally and wider. Um, so, the, yeah, the tide is rising from that perspective, but yeah, of course, when you sat at the top of the table and you've just won and you're the last on sort of the equivalent of much of the day for women, yeah, it was it was a little bit disappointing, but I suppose it shows you know that we just have to focus on ourselves and you know we'll do as much as we can with our own local media um networks to try and grow our fan base and our audience. Um, locally in Sussex but yeah the, the TV picks uh, both on Sky and the BBC to date um, we haven't had a home match we had one match away at Chelsea that was live on Sky we are mm-hmm. live on the BBC on Sunday which is brilliant because the viewing figures clearly for a free-to-air show um, are much higher than the paid TV so, yeah, be um, be really exciting to see the the viewing figures for this weekend. But, yeah, of course, you know, every team wants to play on TV at home. So, we're hoping that we might get selected um, yeah. at least a couple of times this season.
0: Yeah, the, the, the match of the day curse, obviously, as far as the highlights things. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's going to be great coverage, definitely, at the weekend. And I suppose, in a way, it's not bad to go under the radar. In one sense, is it, and it's it's typical of the media to kind of focus on others. We're, we're used to that as Brighton fans, and um, you know, so I suppose that's all fair, all fair in love and war. But um, the main focus will just be obviously on on just carrying on, continuing to do as well as you can. Um, in terms of the the, the squad and the personnel, that there's been ambition shown in terms of this summer with signings as well. We've made some really interesting signings uh, for the first team, and that, that's going pretty well. They've settled in nicely, haven't they?
1: Yeah, they have done. We've added some, you know, experience in Daniel Carter, some yeah. youth in Winsola Babajide Day and Franz Stenson. So, uh, and also signed you know, some of our own you know, in Libby Vance and uh, Maisie Simmons, who was with us last year as well. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, some real sort of exciting English talent um, that have you know, joined us or uh, stayed with us. So, uh, as well as uh, securing uh, Goomin Lee, and um, she was online yes. from Man City, from last and and uh, South Korean. Mm-hmm. Forward, so uh, so yeah, real strength, um, yeah, this season compared to last, also certainly built on the squad, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's looking okay.
0: Yeah, it's, it is looking very good. Um, I do think yeah, Lee's certainly a really good acquisition. Danielle Carter as well, very skillful, kind of fixed an experienced head as well. In a sense, she's she looks like she's kind of got she's very calm in front of goal and looks like she can rove about. And Maya Letizia as well is uh, another one who's. I think she's quite flexible from what I can gather. She seems to be played in different positions from when I have been able to look at games in terms of highlights. I haven't been to a live game yet, I should say. I'm hoping to change that very soon. But um, in terms of that, she seems quite a flexible um, figure within the team and also one of of the other high-quality players. No relation of Matt Letizia, apparently, I'm, I'm told. Is that correct? Yeah, that's
1: right. No, she's Just, from Guernsey. She's got Le- yeah. Letizia as a surname, but, but no relation. But, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. Having Danielle's experience, you know, having been a, a senior England international, she scored at Wembley, you know, she played in FA Cup finals. So, to have that knowledge and experience within the squad is is a big um, plus Certainly for our um, youth internationals, so we had five players go away with England um, youth teams in this most recent international break. So it's great having Dan Carter and um, yeah for them to to learn from and, and to yeah observe really. So uh, yeah, she's been a great addition.
2: She's probably the sort of signing we probably wouldn't have made been able to make a year before when we were down in like tenth or eleventh, but now with you know sixth place, you know we actually are quite attracted to players who maybe have just dropped off the kind of first team of the top four, but want to kind of keep on you know, first team
1: competing in the top half yeah exactly and obviously you know knowing that she'd be working with hope powell um it's yeah. yeah, a big class plus. plus the training ground as well we showed her around uh, the training ground so she could see what was about to open um yeah and then just the the investment more broadly across the club she could see the vision um which she bought into which is great
0: yeah and of course hope has been with us for quite a while now i've got to check actually how long It must be about five years or so is it Yeah, four or five. Four four or five, yeah. And she's she's obviously gone from strength to strength again. I mean, obviously, her profile is as England manager for quite a long time. And then I didn't really feel I knew what she was doing after that. So and she's come in and and you wondered, oh, is she going to be the the person? It's great. It's obviously a high profile name. But she's proved she's got the credentials still, hasn't she? She's really uh, moved the team on. Looks like a cool head as well in terms of, and and obviously an experienced head. Um, That must help.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, she's she's so passionate and so driven for the women's game and equality across the game as well. So you'll see her champion and and call out, um, where she needs to. So uh, yeah, she's a terrific ambassador for everyone, and you know, obviously, so experienced and you know, really, I suppose, passionate about developing individuals as well as the team. So she'll she'll give a lot to yeah to both players and staff actually as well. So uh, yeah, she's yeah just. A fountain of knowledge really within the women's game it's amazing
2: to think of the equivalent uh, you know in a men's game of a team you know in what the position that Brighton were in we were in when um when she joined and appointing a former England manager who's got such a good record in the game I mean it's huge isn't it it must have been a, a massive boost at the time for the club generally
1: yeah and again I think for Hope just seeing the project you know they were in WSL 2 which is now the championship and um, so the, the second tier to start off with to so then get promoted and also again sort of see that vision and you know she had a big input in terms of the new building and was you know the champion to get the, a swimming pool in there um so yeah she she certainly has had her mark and will, will leave a, a terrific legacy whenever she decides to, to do something else but yeah it's uh, it's great having her at the club and yeah, just her, her experience alone is uh, yeah, a massive help.
2: I think that's so, a totally so, true generally, isn't it? I think he, in, in the men's game as well, he brings the managers to, to be a project rather than just to kind of come in and manage. It's kind of you have to engage and you know, kind of just, yeah, be a part of the club and yeah, engage in that sort of side of things as well, rather than just come in and do a job and then head off again almost. it's kind of
1: yeah, exactly. We, we joke that our jobs or our work isn't done until we've won the Champions League back to back.
0: Why stop yeah. at back to back?
1: Well, I would say like you can't just win it once; you have to retain it. <laughs>
0: It's a Bond film out at the moment. We've got to be thinking about world domination here, Polly, surely. Yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. So, so working... up. yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, so your working relationship with Hope is, I don't know how much contact you have day-to-day with her, but how does it work in general? Because so I guess it's uh, its probably mixed, isn't it, depending on what's going on week to week.
1: Yeah, so we're in, um, well, each day that the women's first team are training, I'm there as well. So Hope and my office are next door to each other. Um, We're on WhatsApp probably on a daily basis. So, yeah, really close working relationship. I actually knew Hope when I worked at the FA, so we've known each other a long time. So that was quite nice coming into the environment with a familiar face and a a good relationship already. So now we we get on really well. Um, Yeah, it's just really nice to work with her. And I just see my role to try and provide her and the technical staff and the players with everything they need to be able to perform on a on a daily basis so uh, yeah we, we're both driven we both have um, you know those ambitions to succeed and do as well as we can so uh, yeah it's a good good relationship
0: how does it work in terms of the structure um obviously we've got Dan Ashcroft who's a major figure sort of overseeing various aspects of the footballing side um where does where does your position sit in regard to him do you have um is he directly under you above sorry above you or um, is it kind of side on a bit more how, how does it work
1: yeah, it's so the women's departments split into two different areas. Um, so there's the technical side, and Hope reports into Dan Ashworth, technical director, and then on the operation side, I report into Paul Mullen, their chief operating officer, right. and that allows us to have the knowledge and experience of both those sides. Um, but yeah, we're, we kind of meet in the middle and we're, we're really aligned um, on areas that overlap. But uh, yeah, we have the technical experience of, of Dan, which is fantastic as well as the operational support from Paul. Yeah,
0: that's good. On another matter, actually, um, just you mentioned um, about Tony Bloom's vision and everything else. And, and succession planning is clearly a very big part of that for him across the board. In terms of the women's games on, on the playing side in particular, um, we're looking at here really. Um, what, what's going on there in terms of, because you've got Amy Merrick's is number two, isn't she? And she, I've heard her interviewed on a couple of podcasts before and she came across very well. She seems a very um, intelligent, astute kind of person figure within the club. Uh, is she planning to kind of step on to become a coach herself or is she um, looking at a different role? And, and who else? Is there anybody else already in the in the mix for longer term planning?
1: Good question. Um, that I'm, <laughs> Sorry, on, I'm
0: anyway. on the spot there. Yeah, <laughs> I know, no, I I know think... obviously you want to keep hope in anyway yeah, for the long term. But... I
1: think, you know, Amy's just learning on a probably weekly basis from hope still. So. You know, there is so much knowledge and experience in you know, in that head of hers that uh, I'm sure Amy is you know really benefiting from that. She's also taking, or I think she's applying to take her pro license as well. So she's done her A license recently. So you know there's still you know plenty of opportunities for her to grow and develop within her current role. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure of her own personal ambitions uh, right now. You were saying.
2: Then you'd work with um, Hope at the FA. What's what is your is that your background before then when you were at the FA beforehand? And
1: so I was at UEFA um, and I relocated from Switzerland um, to Sussex. So I was there for five years working in women's football development and supporting their 55 federations um, across Europe. Wow. And then before that, I was at the FA doing women's football development. So at the time I met Hope, the, the team was much smaller. Um, I was working on sort of commercial activations. I was doing um player appearances with the lionesses doing participation programs working with education partners so i think they've now got about 10 staffing to do what i was doing when i was there and um, it just shows the, the growth really in in the, the game over that period of time uh, and yeah hope was the the national team manager when i was there so we'd align on various events and uh yeah trying to raise the profile and that kind of thing
2: so brighton's your first kind of like club rather than country or or, you know kind of bigger kind of network then at the moment
1: yeah i was on the board at nottingham forest um where i'm from originally so i was on their women's board um for just over two years so i had an insight really into club development but also working at uefa we'd support women's leagues and then consult with clubs on that side as well
2: it must be quite a different role than being day-to-day at a club as compared to doing maybe kind of yeah working for the uefa or the fa yeah interesting been,
1: game. Yeah that's right I was actually at the the Euro draw um, in Manchester last night so the yeah the draw for which teams are going to play in which groups at which stadium yeah yeah I was saying I was speaking to a lot of former UEFA and FA colleagues at that event and saying ex- exactly that that actually the the transition from um, a federation to a confederation then to a club was actually bigger than I expected and Whilst I've worked in women's football development for almost 15 years, I think getting my feet on the ground and having direct impact on operations and delivery, I'm absolutely loving it. Um, But yeah, it probably took a a longer time for me to, to make that transition than I expected.
0: Yeah, it certainly looks like you've really enjoyed it. As I mentioned before, you came on the Seagulls on, Over London meeting in town. And um, you could tell by the way you were talking about it and smiling away with it. You know, you're obviously clearly loving the role there. And um, it seems that it's a happy place to work in general, the Albion. I keep hearing good stories about good work environments, just a nice vibe. And um, it's good to see that um, you're really enjoying it down here. So, yeah, and... the,
1: the staff are just so... The the wider club staff are so supportive. They're really keen to learn more about women's football, to understand what it's like to be a female player. I mean, obviously the club have been going since 1901, but to adopt a professional women's team in the last three seasons, you know, it's quite a culture shift, um, you know, to understand the differences between male and female players. So that's, I suppose, what I'm enjoying most, is seeing that almost weekly progression you know, whether it's tailoring the kit to young female players, learning about yeah. the menstrual cycle and the impact that that has on performance. So some of those nuances within the women's game and just that keenness for the club yeah. to learn and to adopt. And it's just, yeah, an open door and sort of welcome up, you know, welcoming environment for the club to, to learn more around women's football. So, yeah, it's a brilliant environment. And I'm just really lucky to work with so many talented people we've got about 25 staff in the women's department in total from the girls academy up to the women's first team. And yeah, everybody's so dedicated and committed that it's, yeah, it's a wonderful environment to be in and I'm very fortunate to be there.
2: Is there there much interaction between the men and women's first team and the, and the lower and the younger levels as well?
1: It's it's been a bit difficult recently because of the protocols and trying Mm. to keep um, teams into separate testing pools. So we've actually, been discouraging crossover um, so we have different meal times different training times we're on different pitches just to try and protect the players as much as possible we've been doing zoom calls uh, or outdoor meetings so there is certainly that, there's that um, crossover between staff if not players yet but as and when the time is right then that will certainly be encouraged to try and get more integration and crossover between the players.
0: That's all good. Yeah, I think those little details, as you said about getting the the kits and looking at particular requirements um, tailored towards the women's game, I think it's, it's really important, isn't it? I think I, I don't know how to what degree other clubs are doing that, but if we're doing every single bit that we can be doing, we've that's got to help put us in an advantageous position, both for the welfare of the players, but also for maybe being that bit more of an appealing uh, club to come to for other yeah. other players as they hear about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we've we've changed the colour of the shorts. So, you know, for young girls starting their menstrual cycle, wearing a white pair of shorts isn't uh, ideal for confidence yes. levels. So we've now changed yeah. that to, to a darker pair and we'll continue to do that moving forwards. And we've had support from Nike and our commercial team in doing that. So, again, it's that understanding, oh, gosh, of course, you know, let's change. Mm. So that's that's yeah. been really welcomed. Also, the kit sizes, you know, as girls' bodies are changing, they might prefer... You know a larger fit or a men's fit at some stage of their um yeah, some stage of their development others might want a women's fit so it's just trying to work out how girls feel most comfortable and giving that option and that that voice really to uh yeah to to say what is best for them and I think one of the really good projects that we've created is a player council where we're giving players the voice you know to let us know some feedback on things like kit um, you know things that might not seem that important but actually are really important you know to some of our players and that player council is also being adopted on the male pathway as well so I mean clearly you can't give players you know the decisions on everything but it's good to consult with them on areas where you know they can have a voice
0: brilliant yeah, sounds a really good idea you mentioned the girls team there um as well obviously you're covering the, the, the younger groups as well how are things progressing there in terms of um, both on and off pitches is, is it all going to plan is there are there lots of things you s- still feel you need to do um, in that in those with those teams at those levels
1: I went to go and watch the under twelves a couple of weeks ago and they were absolutely brilliant um, so they play in a boys league um, and they're just just technically oh. fantastic and I think you know the job that they're doing to raise the profile of women's football you know within their league and you know for the the boys that they play against and the parents of the boys that they play against to, to sort of change perception, perhaps of, of mm. girls football. They were just, they were absolutely brilliant, you know, quick on the attack. They kept the ball well. They were moving really well. It was just, they were an absolute joy to watch. So, you know, I'd encourage any, yeah. anyone as and when we can to, to go and watch some of the youth teams. Um, because yeah, they're just super impressive, you know, excellent footballers who just happen to be girls. And um, I suppose the main difference between the boys and the girls pathway at the moment is that some of the boys get a day release from school and education, whereas we don't have that yet uh, on the girls side. So the girls are training in the evenings at weekends, whereas the boys sometimes train during the day, which means then they've got time to do their homework and eat properly before going to bed. Whereas the girls are having to do football and then homework and then eat and then go to bed. So it's it takes a bit more out of the girls I'd say. Um so they get a bit more tired and they're perhaps not able to put into in the quality in terms of the freshness that the boys get on their side. So that, there's still plenty that we can do, but um I, I can't imagine that would come in anytime soon. I think particularly because there's only sort of 12 teams that are professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a couple in the championship as well. So 14 professional teams in England. There's only one other professional league in the world, and that's in the US. There are professional teams across Europe, in Germany and in France and Scandinavia, but the market is just not there. Um, it's not mature enough to have professional contracts um, at younger ages at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I suppose it's the, those kind of growing pains between trying to professionalise the women's game, yet also realise the resource that we've got um, and try and find a, a balance really between the two
2: it was that was summer wasn't there The tra- record transfer was like 250,000 or something like that and you look at the men's game where Neymar's obviously gone for 200 million a few years ago and it's the difference is you know crazy and, and Daniel Carter was our first money player we bought for money wasn't she yeah. so I mean it's yeah even in, in our side you know, we paid 20 million or, or roughly 20 million I think for a player on a men's side so I mean it's yeah. yeah we're
1: starting to see that in the recruitment so in the market there are we're starting to see, you know, huge requests and demands for salaries. Yet there is no, you know, there just isn't that level of income. Yes, we've got a TV deal for the first time where clubs receive money and revenues from the TV, but it's it's absolutely not at the same percentage as the men's game. So, which again, it's that fine balance of trying to professionalise on the pitch but be sustainable at the same time.
2: Mm. And so the bigger clubs are in a, in a way the ones who where the owner wants will just. Subsidise it basically and kind of and not want to kind of be sustainable, just kind of pay the money, which is the same yeah. in the men's <laughs> game, actually, as well. Exactly. Way. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The um, yeah, with the um, the winners' game, obviously, it sounds like the, the new generations are developing more, maybe stepping the game on more, and um, which is which is great to see. Um, and obviously, we look forward to the fruits of that. Um, coming later on down the line. But I, I do think those there's, there's giant steps that have had to have been made, haven't there, through the years, because of the way it was historically. Um, I actually don't have the timeline um, in, to recollection at the moment, but I know there was a, a substantial period of time where the women's game was banned, essentially, and women were banned from playing, which seems both ludicrous and sort of pretty disgusting uh, by anyone's standing. Um, for a, a sizable amount of time while it was still being played in other countries and we we've set ourselves back hugely with that haven't we i guess is it still a recovery period we're still seeing the, the effects of that the recovery period's still ongoing um yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, yeah we're,
1: we're still trying to recover from that ban mm. um yeah. yeah you know girls don't still still don't necessarily see football as a sport for them so they're Mm. not necessarily participating at school if you're not participating at school you're unlikely to play in a club so it still has this long lasting effect that we're trying to change culture you know this perception that football is a boys sport you know we're still trying to get over um both the girls themselves parents you know society so yeah it's it was devastating and yeah there's still an awful lot to do to to get back to to where the game was
0: It's almost a flip side of america isn't it in america is perceived as a girls sport and only in more recent times it's become popular in fact hugely popular in the men's game there are some really big crowds now um in terms of the um the the women's game speaking about crowds um how well actually i'll ask you first about um with schools have you got any idea in terms of um school curriculums how many what proportion of schools will have um football for girls as a pretty much as a default? Option, um, is it still kind of hit and miss in terms of which schools have that as part of their normal PE and other recreational activities?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have yeah. those stats. No, that. that's right. The county FA certainly would, but I, I'm, I might be wrong in saying this, but I, I wonder if it's down to the individual school to determine which sports they select, and of course, then which yeah. facilities they've got and which qualifications the teachers have got, and that kind of thing. So, I don't think. I don't know but my, my guess would be that it, it's dependent on the teachers at the yeah. school
0: to choose yeah well getting on to crowds then so i mean first of all yeah the, um, there's a couple of questions around albion's home games. so and um, the general setup is you get occasional home games at the amex which is part of an arrangement um but you can't do that too much obviously because of the wear and tear on the pitch and various other things home games are generally played at crawley's um, men's home grounds, uh, which is the, is the Albion Women's home grounds, on an ongoing basis at the moment. I know a lot of people would um, like bigger crowds to be there, and I guess there is a possible issue with the geography of the situation in terms of um, whether Albion fans would travel that far if they are indeed not that close to Crawley. Um, are there plans in place longer term to get back into a, more of the Brighton and Hove area, or at least close closer to it? Um, and how are the crowds in general at the moment anyway
1: and um, so pre-covid we had an average of 1300 um at the yeah. women's games and we're just surpassing that at the moment so we've seen some brilliant crowds so far this season including two and a half thousand at the amex for the for the opening game i think we have to be mindful as well sort of post-pandemic you know people's confidence mm. levels of returning to, to mass events and, and sporting events so i think there's Generally across the league, attendances have been down for those reasons, and you know, yeah. understandably so. Plus, then you know, the testing protocols and and things that make it slightly more difficult than it used to be um, to buy a ticket and get a test and, and dem- to demonstrate those um, sort of administration processes. Um, but having said that, yeah, we've been really pleased with the crowds that we've had at Crawley. Um, we've got another game at the Amex on Sunday, the 14th of November, and that's against Leicester City. So we're hoping to build on that opening day um, attendance. So yeah, hoping to get maybe closer to four or five thousand for that game. We're actually working in conjunction with the local girls and women's league, so they're looking at changing their fixtures to enable female players that play locally to come and watch. Because at the moment, a lot of women's football takes part on a Sun on a Sunday. And senior women's football is at two o'clock, so you've got a direct clash there with yeah. people that play to try and get them to come and watch. So that the Girls League have been absolutely brilliant in being flexible and, and supporting uh, the, yeah, the Brighton Hive uh, Albion Women's First team. Yeah. Um, we're also doing other things by engaging with um, the Royal Pavilion Museums Trust. Um, so they're doing a special offer for some of their members. We're engaging with um, schools through Albion in the community. Uh, Wildcat centres through the County FA so we're really trying to engage with as many community partners as possible yourselves included um, and hopefully some other um, supporters trusts within the men's section of the club so yeah we're really trying as much as we can to to boost attendances you know it's uh, it's a really welcoming atmosphere um, at Crawley and at the MX, and we're actually quite lucky to have those two really good options to play as. We've just done um, like a, a profit and loss uh, exercise to determine how many tickets we need to sell at the Amex to make it cost neutral or, or to break even. So that's been a really interesting part. We need to do the same for for Crawley, and I suppose this sort of research going on in the background to determine where where the women's team is best placed. Mm-hmm. You know, are there other locations in Brighton? Um, you know, in terms of attracting supporters, but also from an operation and a performance perspective. So we're speaking to other clubs as well. So Birmingham City, Reading, Watford, Leicester, who play at the men's or the main club stadia to see what their experiences are like. So yeah, we're, we're just, we're doing a bit of a, a feasibility study and some uh, research into what where the best place is for the women's team to be in the future. But but equally Crawley have been great hosts and uh, really looked after us. And the the quality of the service there has really improved as well. So, uh, yeah, we've got nice options, which is good.
0: That's good. Good to hear. I'm I'm assuming traditionally the crowds have tended to be um, families in general, uh, particularly women and girls going a lot uh, to to the Games and not so much sort of male, say adult males, for example. Um, And is that the biggest kind of thing to try and get more... Obviously, you want to get people across the board in in greater numbers, but in particular men, for for example, I don't think, Peter, you've not been to a a women's game yet, have you? Same as me. Um, In my case, and probably yours as well, being in London, it's more logistical than anything. But but in general, it's getting people like us to go along and give it a try, isn't it, I would imagine. Yeah, it Um,
1: is actually still majority male. Um, and really which yeah we're really trying to target people that play football because if you play football you're likely to to go and watch or or bring your kids along as well so um that's one of our focus is as well as those community groups is to have a think about you know fiber side centers men's clubs because yeah if you if you play football you have an interest in it and there's always football on right so uh yeah that's that's some of our target um sort of strategic target audiences but you know obviously everyone is welcome you know, young, old, male, female, um, yeah, ethnic minority, anybody is is welcome, and and we'd hope that they have a, a good experience while they're with us.
2: It must be harder as well with Albion's games being moved around so much this season. <laughs> you know, kind of, we very rarely seem to be Saturday three o'clock kickoff this season. So you know, if you go to Sunday, but then it clashes with a you know an Albion playing away or something like that, or or even it must be harder the weekend when Brighton are playing Saturday at home, but then. People are like, well, I've been to football on Saturday. Can, can I Can I commit to going two days in a row or something? It's kind of, you know, because so the loyal supporters almost are, are lost a bit because they're kind of the ones who go Saturday, so even away from home. And so that means that they've got probably less more other things to do on Sunday than football, basically, because they've basically done yeah. football yesterday.
1: And exactly. And there's a couple of direct clashes at the moment. So, for example, the the women's team play away at Everton. Um 6th of November, exactly the same day, exactly the same time as the men play Newcastle at home. So yeah. from a comms perspective, that's quite difficult to you know, inform your supporters of what's happening at two matches that kick off at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, it's not ideal when the men's game gets shifted to the same mm-hmm. day and time as yeah. the the women's, but equally the women's could be changed for TV as well. So you've now got two moving parts that are almost out of your control <laughs> so, yeah you know, that's... it can be it can be quite tricky Uh um, difficult isn't it mm. yeah yeah.
0: And, and obviously Newcastle, everyone will be keen to go along to show their support for the new ownership regime there, I'm sure, uh, for, that, for that match. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. Um, well, they're
1: welcome to Everton away instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so in terms of the next game coming up, this FA Cup match, it's at the weekend, it's on Sunday, it's 4.45 kick-off, isn't it? I think I right saying. So it's Arsenal against the Albion, the other semi-final is Chelsea against City, I think, isn't it, by the way? Um yeah you know, i think i've heard mixed reports that it's the first time or alternatively the first time since 1976 that we've been in the semi-final i think it, the latter is correct isn't it we have been there before but not for a long long time i'm not i'm not even sure actually I somebody probably <laughs> shaking their head it doesn't matter that's all history stuff anyway but um it's a very rare treat for us to get there if anybody can get along please do do so i mean you can find the details on the club website which i've just had a look at which is um reserved seating in their main east stand adults 12 pounds and the half price for concessions there's also unreserved seating in the west stand or standing areas which is eight pounds for adults half price for concessions um so obviously you can get your tickets through the through the website i'm guessing at this stage possibly maybe collecting on on the day if you do that and might be an option um can people go and turn up and get in on the door i'm presuming they can can they Polly? do you know about that
1: they're certainly being encouraged to buy in advance um yeah, ticket sales idea. are going mm. quite well at the moment so i wouldn't want anybody right. to miss out so i would certainly yeah. advise booking online um it's likely in an, any e- any e- ticket anyway so you probably need to have that on your phone to show anyway rather sure. than a, a or a print at home so i would certainly yeah. encourage people to do that in advance
0: Okay, that's great. And please, please do go along if you can, guys and girls. Um, it should be a good event. And who knows? Arsenal have had a pretty good start themselves this season. It's looking daunting, but uh, it's probably the worst draw on paper. Pretty yeah, much yeah, both, both men
2: and women's team this weekend have got a pretty daunting
0: game. Yeah, yes, exactly. The album play playing Liverpool, um, for which we'll be doing a preview on this episode in a later part. But um. And as far as it goes, Paulie, just to quickly finish off, so you, were, you mentioned Nottingham Forest earlier, you're working with them, you're from that area, you're a Forest fan, aren't you? I was, I was hoping to keep congratulating you on the amazing start you've had under Steve Cooper. A load of three goal-scoring um, wins. Unfortunately, it went a little bit wrong at the weekend um, with a certain Fulham team that's on fire. But generally, they've done all right, haven't they? So best of luck to them. Um, and you, But you've, you said at Seagulls Over London, you're also a bit of an Albion fan now, having kind of been around for a while now with us is my that son's true got
1: two, my son's got two kids so uh, yeah i think that ah. that shows where my loyalties are.
0: perfect brilliant that's good to hear <laughs> excellent and that's a good note to end on polly i think so thank you very much for joining us and we we'll yeah, look forward long. to
2: yeah, pretty interesting yeah thank we'll, so thanks
1: we'll, for having we'll me look forward and, to uh, the... yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime
0: absolutely, absolutely. yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd be very welcome to come back on absolutely great okay. thanks. maybe, maybe we'll in the body. final
2: next isn't
0: it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah maybe yeah. do a special for the final yeah <laughs> or, or the
1: amex on the 14th you're very welcome there as
0: well yes that's it that's cool. against leicester isn't it that one yes yeah. uh, for anyone looking for tickets for that one too great thanks then to Pod- poddy bancroft for joining us fantastic So that was great to hear there from Polly Bancroft, the women and girls um, general manager at the Albion. Um, that was really good interview, isn't it, Peter? Really, really That's enjoyed really yeah. Her. yeah, she's great. And really, really do wish him the best of luck for the um, coming weekends and that big FA Cup match. Um, Anyway, part two, we've got John, um, not John Gibbons actually, he couldn't make it, it's Neil Atkinson, our old friend Neil Atkinson's joining us in part three for a preview of Liverpool. Before we do that, we won't spend too much on this really, uh, time-wise, but the Leicester game in midweek, a disappointing result in the end, League Cup fourth round, Um, it was a 2-2 draw in normal time. And then we lost on penalties, which is not something we do that often, actually, in shootouts. Um, but Leicester, I did feel we're going to win it when, it when it went to penalties. I had no confidence at all because they've got a lot of good takers, and we uh, have a bit of a sketchy re- record with our current crop, um, apart from Grosh and McAllister, who did put theirs away. Anyway, the team lineup for this one was stealing goal. So he, he got back in in his usual role for this competition. Webster made his first start back, Duffy and Roberts, young Roberts, the other two. Um, playing with Veltman wider to the right and burn in the left wing back role, his favorite, uh, Grosh and McAllister as the midfielders. And then we had a mixture, an interesting lineup up front of, um, well, two of, two of, um, Albion's favorite strikers, LaCardia and Connolly, and also young Sarmiento, who is a real talent, a box full of tricks, skillful, fast, dynamic. He was, um, he was a plus point in what was seemed to be a three, four, three formation effectively. Um, there weren't many others, and certainly I, from what I've heard from people that were at the game, neither of us were, but from people that were, Connolly and Cardia, neither, neither of whom made any great impression at all, Sarmiento did, um, and I think Duffy did well, McAllister I think did well, and um, a couple of the subs as well, Roberts also did well at the back. Um, what was your? Um, I mean, you didn't see the game, neither did no. I, Peter. In terms um, of just the goals, isn't it so the, far? The,
2: frust- the frustration from what I heard isn't so much that we lost, because I think, yeah, I think we felt we probably would, but that we we put quite a decent side out, and if it wasn't for a couple of errors, we could easily have won. I think it was, yeah. it was we gave the goals away that we conceded, whereas like we, well, certainly for the second one, we we worked a well-worked goal, but for the first, their two goals, we gave we gave them the goals basically, and that's the frustration yeah. in a way that we, we gifted two goals to them and still managed to get a draw. You know, if, we, if, we, if we'd not done that, hopefully we'd have got a win. So the frustration isn't so much that we drew and then lost on penalties because, you know, to all. like I felt at Leicester, we, went, we lost one under the FA Cup last year. as a decent result, you know, overall against, you know, considering the team we put out. It was just more yeah. that we could have done better if we hadn't been for a couple of individual errors. I mean, yeah, I think the sort of front three shows where our weakness is, doesn't it really? I mean, without well fitness, and Mope did come on, obviously, in the end. Um, But, yeah, it shows where the weakness in the side is because the rest of that team looks okay, generally. Um, Yeah, it's not big problems. Obviously, Berms now out, which is another blow, seemingly for a a bit of time, which is a frustration because we just, I think it was a comment made elsewhere that we just finally got all our defenders fixed.
0: And then we lose yeah. another one because, um, I suppose yeah. if you, if you are losing another one, at least we have got them fit first, I suppose. Yeah. But that, that conceding an early, conceding an early goal again and from a mistake again, same with the city game of the weekend. Um, it's Harvey Barnes got the goal at the beginning and after six minutes from a Luke Steele mistake. Well, um, I mean, plans. not Ashley Barnes. Yes. As, as some people in uh, the pre-match publicity were saying. Um, and it wasn't three points for grabs, uh, at Harvey, uh, but he did get the goal six minutes from that mistake by Steele. We, we eventually equalised in three minutes into stoppage time in the first half with Webster making that for that comeback game. He, um, he actually got on the score sheet um, with, a, with a kicked finish as well. Wasn't a header. Um, pretty decent, I think, you know, um, bounced back well. Only problem is they then scored within a couple more minutes, even later into injury time in the first half through Lukman, from a mistake by Sarmiento, who had had a very good game apart from that. He found himself... Back to goal fairly deep on trying to kind of shuffle past somebody and then try to lay it off, I think, presumably for the goalkeeper to pass out wide to the other side, but it didn't quite get the measure of things and um, in-ghosted Lukman and um, scored. Um, we did get a goal later in the game through Mwepu, uh, which is great to see. He got he a good well assist against as well. Cardiff. And he, that was a really well-taken goal. His first goal for us, isn't it? Um, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. 71st minute. Um, and got
2: an assist in one of the previously cut games but no goals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, I suppose it's testament to us that despite those mistakes, Leicester were very happy to get to penalties in the end, from what I've heard. Yeah. And in the end, um, as I said, I, I, I didn't feel confident with the shootout. I thought they'd beat us. small pay hit the bar with his penalty. Same end where he missed the penalty you know, last season. Um, and then Mweppo himself the other one he didn 't look very confident stepping up actually, so maybe that 's something um, maybe that was just on the day or maybe that 's generally not his forte i don 't know, but yeah it wasn 't a particularly well taken one it was saved, and that was the decider so it's four two on pens to them they go through to the quarters we miss out again on the quarterfinals we never seem to get there um but um yeah i mean overall I'm, I was reasonably. Happy that we managed to make a good fist of it, at least. Um, decent yeah. scoreline overall, isn't it? A kind of respectability. Um, and not much more to say just in terms of stats. Um, interestingly, we have 57% possession and we have more shots um, off target and the same number on target, which was fired, by the way. Um, and I think we had more corners. So there's a lot of attacking intent in there yeah. by the looks of it. And those that went to the game, I won't look through the Seagulls Over London WhatsApp, but there was a few people from, from SOL who went to the game and all met up, which is great to see. Um, I think the general feedback was that Lacardia was very lethargic and yeah. couldn't be bothered or didn't look like he could. Um, Connolly had one, missed one, one good chance and then didn't do much else. I think he snapped at a, a board he could have run onto more. <clears throat> Um,
2: yeah. Sarmiento sounds like he might be. If you're playing a front three or like that, then might be yeah. actually ahead of one. Certainly, Licardio you'd have thought at the moment. I mean, he sounds yeah. like had a really promising yeah. couple of games. He came on against Swansea as well, and looked promising. He's done well in the under-23s, yeah. and we know Graham Potter's not afraid to put young players in. Given our lack of options up front, he actually may get a chance to to get get in the team and certainly cement a place on the bench, if not in yeah. the team. Even if he if he gets, you know, he gets to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I probably, this was already the case, but I'm all, all the more so. I'm now done with Lacardia. You know, he's he's got his one moment to try and prove himself. I didn't like the way he's warming up at Norwich. You know, there's something about him which just doesn't look like he's giving enough of a good impression. No, I don't, he, I don't think
2: he's that committed, I don't think, into that. He's way not committed
0: enough we need we need commitment so we're not going to have that we can have someone of equal quality who's more committed that may not be good enough quality you could argue but at least you'd have someone more committed yeah. and and that's at the very least what you expect from any player um so i'm i'm done with him really and i, I would like us to it feels like replace... he was a, bit of a,
2: a not a panic buy but certainly hmm. we've been linked with quite a few strikers in the summer the first season up and then obviously needed to get one in the winter because we were we were struggling to score goals and yeah, yeah. we didn't I mean you could argue the biggest thing he did first of all in the first season was to make was to turn Murray's form around and Murray got through his best scoring streak just after the cardia signed.
0: Yeah. Um, in terms of the other games, the the other interesting one was Man City lost to West mm. Ham. Um, another away side losing in the same sequence sequential order in terms of the way the penalties panned out, interestingly. West Ham took their th- theirs first and the misses were at the exact same point so they won theirs 4-2. Um, th- so that, that's a bit disappointing that City are out and if we had a got through on pens, which is a lottery, isn't it, um, we would have avoided City, uh, the perennial winners at yeah, this time. Yeah, there's still plenty of
2: quality on. in there and I don't think we'd have won the I mean, up.
0: What we Liverpool done still, still there, Chelsea got still so there.
2: Final, You know, because... Um,
0: we could have played you know, Sunderland.
2: You get a draw of QPR or sorry, Sunderland and or someone yeah, like that yeah. at home, or yeah, or even yeah. someone like West Ham at home. You know, it would have been more of an even game. And then,
0: yeah. or you know, even Brent- if we'd have got Brentford, we could have had another nice day out by in West London by the river again, couldn't we? Don't That's talk. It's very about annoying. In fact, you missed it last day. time, didn't you? Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> yeah. So all the more, I'm disappointed for you, Peter, because it might have been that. Um, any home game would have been interesting, and I would have started to get to the games really from the quarter final stage, but. I just have to. That's glory
2: hand just, just rock on Glory. The <laughs> I, I, I
0: have to. I have to cut my cloth somewhere, and uh, I, I had to draw a line with the League Cup early rounds. But yeah, so we have to wait till next year for that one. I mean, the FA Cup. I'm really hopeful that we can go on a long run there. You know, this team is capable of winning a major trophy mm. with a lot of fortune and with some good play and maybe a bit of um, a bit of luck uh, with the draws themselves. Yeah, it's watching the, the draw impact. and yeah. yeah. Why not? We we might be able to. We've we got the semi-finals
2: though. with a with a less good squad and a,
0: yeah. a fortunate run.
2: I think the key will be either getting Welbeck back or getting a striker in in mm. January because if, uh, inevitably we play a slightly weaker team in the FA Cup. Uh, I wonder if we'll start. You know, kind of we need to get someone else in for that. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't have a decent run in the FA Cup this season. Obviously, if you draw City around the third away in the third round, you're probably going to lose. But if you have yeah. a yeah a reasonable run and have a few games and yeah, then who knows? Nah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's on to Liverpool next. And after this next break, we're going to be talking to the Anfield Raps, Neil Atkinson, about, well, that game that they've just had on the weekend. I'm sure he'll be revelling and talking about that. And also his thoughts on the game coming up this weekend between our sides. So stay tuned for that in part three coming up after this short break. OK, so Peter and I are now joined by the Anfield Raps. Um, Holly, well, he's, he's basically the royalty of the Anfield Raps, as far as I'm concerned. Um, John Gibbons will be really upset if I say that. It's Mr Neil Atkinson. How you doing, Neil?
3: I'm very good indeed. Very good indeed. It's a pleasure to be on as ever
0: Excellent, great. Really good to have you on. We've been chatting off air, waxing lyrical about a certain game at the weekend that you guys were <laughs> enjoying rather too much, I think. <laughs> um, is that possible, in fact, with a, with a win over those guys? Yeah, but... a- absolutely not possible at all.
2: think ever feel realistically and enjoy it too much if we won five in at Palace, but let's be honest. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Yeah, we might get into that a little bit in a moment. But, um, first of all, um, you know, in terms of your season, a uh, great start, isn't it? Back on track after a, a comedy of injuries last season, which you, you kind of almost got a laugh, haven't you, how bad it got in the end. Um, but you've got those players back, and you I know there's still a couple of injuries still uh, troubling you, but you're back on track, aren't you, now?
3: I think we very much are. I think the, in the end, you were able to sort of to call it a comedy of injuries because in a lot of ways, the worst, a lot of the worst things that could happen to a football team happened and Liverpool still managed to secure third place by the end of the season I think it would have been a really tough blow for the club if they'd have lost Champions League status for a number of reasons the money is one of them but also I think just in general Liverpool's players want to have a go at winning the Champions League every single season it's where they view themselves it's what they see themselves as and in the end Liverpool just about earned that spot even under the you know under the circumstances of all of the injuries and it really was it wasn't just Van Dijk you know I think at the time that's been overblown it was Van Dijk and then six games later When he played brilliantly, it was Joe Gomez. And then in amongst all of that, Joel Matip hung on in until around Christmas, but he was playing with an injury, which he then aggravated around Christmas. Got another game or two in in January, and then he was out for the rest of the season as well. Within that as well, Fabinho moves into centre-back. He gets injured playing there. Jordan Henderson started centre-back in the Merseyside derby. He got injured playing there. You know, it really was, it was, it was spectacular stuff. And in the end, now you can sort of, you can sort of laugh at it. And also you can go, that's about as bad as it can possibly be. And Liverpool still came third. And there's loads of reasons for that last time we were on, we talked about finance and football and all of that sort of stuff. Ultimately, what helped Liverpool in the end was Liverpool's budget is just so big, you know, that they've got, they've got a massive wage budget there for Liverpool. They've got all this talent right the way through the squad. So they were able to cover the deficiencies that were, presence at centre half, even whilst playing people like Phillips and Williams, who weren't obviously quite as good as the players that they've replaced, but Liverpool remodeled the side, finished the season really strongly. And I haven't really looked back, to be honest with you, Liverpool were awful in February and early March. And then they don't play for much of the rest of March. But since sort of the start of April, even with the centre half still being out, Liverpool are unbeaten since then in the league. And And I think it's sort of, they've found a real real vibe against adversity. And then that's shifted into a new campaign, having secured Champions League football for the season, shifted into a new campaign. A few players have had a really good break over the summer and they've just hit the ground running so far this season.
2: If, do you yeah, think, um, it, oh, I suppose like, obviously with hindsight, it's a great thing, but as City did with failing to replace company, do you think failing to, well, let, either letting and go or failing to replace him is, is a big mistake, I suppose, in that sense?
3: I, I think so, but I think Liverpool have, Liverpool's transfer policy, Liverpool have become the sort of, have got themselves back to the sort of global status of a club. You know, one of the things they do, they, they wait for Van Dyke Klopp. So they, they don't sign Van Dyke in the summer because they upset Southampton with the way they go about it. Perfectly reasonably, by the way, uh, hasten to add, you know, they went about it the wrong way. Uh, so they, they took the medicine and didn't sign anyone for four months. And Klopp was prepared to wait. Um, and then at that time, there was a lot of criticism of Klopp for doing that. I think in this one, I think they really wanted Canate. I think the, they ended up signing. And I think they felt they had to wait 12 months and they weren't prepared to compromise then. Uh, because I don't think, I think Liverpool feel as though Liverpool do spend big money and, as I said before, have a really big wage budget. But I think part of how they do that is they try not to get anything wrong. So if they've, decided, if they've identified this is the one we want, they are prepared for whatever reason to wait. So in the long run, has just started at Old Trafford. Whenever he's played this season, he's looked really, really impressive. He looked impressive in pre-season. You know, he, he looks like he could be a serious footballer for Liverpool. So in the long run, it may well be that they didn't get it wrong. But in the short term, I would venture that, yeah, they did that one of the things that hurt them last season is getting that decision wrong. They take a gamble, and I think they felt it was a pretty low-stakes gamble, and it ended up being an exceptionally high Mm-hmm. Uh, high-loss gamble uh, over the course of the season. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's it's one of the ones that I can't wait to read people's memoirs about, if you know what I mean. I want to read the autobiographies on this one. What did Klopp think? What did Edwards think, who's the de facto mm-hmm. sporting director? What did Mike go? what do they all really think now? They'll never tell you honestly right now, but maybe 10 years after the time, and they'll let us know what they really thought of it mm-hmm. uh, and how they thought it got on and what they thought about it in the long term.
2: Because uh, I would say, well, Van Dyke obviously was a massive freak, and it was, you know, that was, you know, there was no real suggestion ever that that would happen. Gomez and Matip both had, I would say, quite questionable injury yeah. records. So to yeah. go in with two of them, as two, two of your three centre halves, was a was a risk. It was kind
3: yeah. Of- I think it was, but I think they'd had a look at Fabinho back there and quite yeah. liked it. And I think they thought, like, we go to Chelsea and win 2-0 at the start of that season with Van Dijk and Fabinho as the centre of our partnership, and Fabinho looks great. Uh, but ultimately, there was a point where for Fabinho, I think it just wrecked his head when he was, when he was getting picked almost as the senior centre-back at one point, not just someone filling in, but as Liverpool's go-to centre-back option. I think it almost undid his ability to play the position. I actually think over the course of the season, Fabinho gets worse at centre-back. And then when he gets himself back in defensive midfield, he's so determined to prove, listen, I can protect this back four from here. If you put me in it, I'm more vulnerable. And he, he ends the season, last 10 games or so, Fabinho back in, holding midfield, playing brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly across those 10 games. And I think it was firstly being conscious of what was behind him because it was the two younger, less experienced, less good players in Phillips and Williams, but also with a sheer determination to say, I don't want to play there anymore. So if I'm great here, no one can make me play there. Uh, and it worked for Liverpool in the end.
2: I must admit, I'm feeling it sounds like he's out this weekend, doesn't he? Which is a, a yeah. bonus from outside. I think he's yeah. one of the, if not the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League. Yeah, it what does it, sound like yeah. he's out
3: The manager's just on his press conference And Fabinho, it's, it, it sounds like it's more complicated Hopefully not too complicated But it does sound like Fabinho is out I always wonder on this if Liverpool Might have just took a bit of a view And thought, we'll just keep him injured Until the international break So he doesn't go away with Brazil um, So it's three games now It's Brighton, the Champions League game, game against Atletico And then West Ham away Now I think we probably like him for, for for Brighton and West Ham And we take a gamble on Atletico But I do wonder if Liverpool might just think You know what? If we act like he's got no legs, the Brazilians can't pick him, <laughs> uh, and then we can keep him over here. And all the COVID stuff from last time is not a problem.
2: Yeah, because that was a yeah, major issue last play. Do you um do you think you'll play pretty much your strongest team and not like put not swap it around with Fetico coming up and stuff? Or
3: yeah, I think you'll go. I think you'll go. What he uses his first eleven broadly. Uh, there's a couple of areas where I think whoever partners Van Dijk is horses-for-courses pick. I think he's gone with Matip at the early part of the season, but I think Matip's been the fittest one. Um, he's not wanted to block Canate immediately, but he's just played Canate at Old Trafford, so I don't think it's quite a pecking order there. I think it's he fancy. Also, it takes Gomez time to get up to speed, and arguably he had the worst injury of everyone. I think he'll go first choice back four because it's just been a League Cup game, uh, and then I think you will have a little look at... It'll be, I think it'll be Henderson. Keita is back fit after the the, the the terrible tackle from Pogba. And Jones, I think it'll probably be in the middle of the park. Oxley, chamberlain or Jones might be a bit of a decision he he makes, but I think he'll go with Jones. And then it'll be, in attack, it'll be three of Firmino. Well, it'll be Salah plus two of Firmino, uh, Jota. Yeah, I was going to say, I
2: don't see Johnson-Salah being rested. Salah.
3: Uh, I, I can't <laughs> see it either. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be Salah and then two of the other three. So and again, that'll be you know Manet doesn't start at Old Trafford, but you would have thought Manet was in his was in his first eleven. So I you know I'm, I can't say which it'll be, but it'll be you know it's it'll be eleven of Liverpool's first fourteen. Mm-hmm. It would available if you sort of see what I mean. Uh, and, he, and in the middle of the park, he'll go as strong as he can. I think
0: against Brighton. Well, I'm still holding out for a 24 hour bug for uh, Salah. Nothing harmful. <laughs> just, just say around Saturday morning time. You know, around then. <laughs> Maybe 48 hour one starting now will be good. <laughs> Just so we could relax a bit earlier. And obviously, you've I mean, had
2: some strikers who've been in amazing form over the years, but have you ever had anyone the form that Salah's in currently? And what do you make of the whole contract thing as well? The kind I of- think I think
3: the the, the the Salah thing is, for the first time possibly since Kenny's and even then it was a matter of a degree of debate. And it, and it still is for Salah, to be fair. But you've got to go all the way back to that, really. You know, I think Gerard's a little bit unfortunate not to win a Ballon d'Or. Um, I think there's a period where Michael Owen around sort of 2000, 2001 verges on downright unplayable. But this is perhaps the nearest thing Liverpool have ever had in amongst all the titles won, all the European trophies won. You know, I think there's a period where, for instance, Graeme Souness is utterly incredible, but where Liverpool may, might just have the best player in the world. And, you know, John Barnes can throw his hat into that ring, but Liverpool weren't able to be in European competition at that time. So it's difficult to tell, but it really is, you know, there's the, the certain moments and as I say, maybe Gerard around 2007, Torres was unreal for a year and a half as a centre forward, but I don't think anyone really was, was arguing Torres was the best footballer in the world. Whereas right now uh, it's, there's a chance that f- for this season, no matter when the, the the big prize, the the Player of the Year prize falls for this season 2021-2022, it's looking possible that Mo Salah might be the best footballer on the planet all the way through, and that's the first time that's happened. You know, in 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 sort of in a modern sort of Liverpool parlance, as I say, I think you probably go, got to go back to Barnes, Su,ness, or Douglish, all of whom played the trade late seventies and through the eighties for that to be the case. And it is interesting. It is different. It is. What we've seen since Salah broke through, he gets 44 goals in his first season. It's his fifth season. He scored unbelievable goals in every year, numbers of goals and unbelievable goals every year he's been here. But after he gets 44, he gets more more enemy action. He gets more sides setting up to try to stop him. I think that sort of begins to ebb because Mane has an excellent 2019. But what you've got now is a situation where the side's setting up to have a Mo Salah plan, but Mo Salah's now too good for the Mo Salah plan. Like, it's you can you can have your plan to mitigate Salah, and it might be that Mane or Jota or Firmino can take advantage of the space that's left. But simultaneously, even whilst you're trying to mitigate for Mo Salah, he can still do you in. And I think that that's something, like, at a really high level. And I think that that's something which, you know, when he's done in, you know, the, the last three games, uh, last four games, you know, he's done in Manchester City, uh, Champions of England, great team, goal and an assist. Uh, he's brilliant against Watford, uh, goal and an assist, Watford relegation candidates. He's done in Atletico Madrid, champions of Spain, um, and then he goes and gets a hat trick at Old Trafford. You know, these are all the different types of challenge, and we can talk United down any way you want. But there's been games where we've gone to Old Trafford while Salah's been at Liverpool, and they've managed to to deal with them. Um, I think at the minute he's all like I. If I was advising an opposition manager, I'd be almost at the point of saying you you, you might be worth not having a special Mo Salah plan. You just might need a Liverpool plan and then hope to sort of stop the supply a little bit more and accept that he will hurt you at some point during the game and hope your goalkeeper makes a great save or you get a bit of luck or something like that. Because I think, you know, when you're looking at what he's doing when he's surrounded by six defenders in the Watford case, five defenders in the Man City case, and the Man City players are amongst the best players in the world. If he's still doing that to them, then the idea that you can put some sort of special plan together that can stop him... In the short term, you might be better off accepting it will happen, but just trying to stop him getting, getting the ball to him a little bit more, stop the supply, stop Liverpool in general, stop Sadio Mane from capitalising on Salah's range of passing, stop all the other bits and sort of hope for the best with that bit. But then it's easy to say that when footballers need a plan and they need preparation.
0: Sorted. That's us sorted now, Peter, isn't it? We've got it. <laughs> um, I mean, the particular brand of football that Salah's playing. Um, You talk about the GOAT debate that constantly goes on and the best player at the moment, if that's different. and certainly, Messi and Ronaldo have been all yeah. the talking points through the years. And there is something very Messiistic about um, Salah's brand of football, isn't there? In terms of the the, the jinking, the shuffling, the, the beating multiple players, the the one-two elements, the the link-up play, the assists, he's got all of the. He, he, there is a physical similarity as well to think, a degree, isn't there? Well,
3: I think that's because he's coming off the right, and he's he's short, short shortish yeah. in stature. But for me, first and foremost, I think Messi's the greatest player ever to play the game. And I would be and I would be sort of genuinely surprised if you know if when the three of us on this call all pop our clogs, if we don 't all feel as though it 's pretty close to still that still being the case like i do, I feel as though there's a, there's, there's a level messy hits for eight seasons or so, which I just feel it is all around football play, not just yeah. the idea of goals or stuff like that is all round play, but I just feel just literally may never be matched um and for me. I don't like the sort of the greatest of all time debate for a number of reasons. It's difficult to compare eras, yeah. But for me, what Salah's currently doing in the Premier League, if you invert it, if you, if you take the symmetry of it, it reminds me of Thierry Henry where you've got this idea that there was a period of time where in the Premier League Henry was the best number nine, best number 10 and best wide player in the country. And he was doing all fulfilling all of those three functions at once. And that's sort of where Salah is at the moment. I think he's he's able to pull wide and really create space and hurt teams from out there. He's got this wonderful range of passing from all over the pitch, uh, certainly from deep, again, wider areas where he's on that right-hand side but curls the ball around with his left foot. Um, and then you've got the idea that in any situation he could just pop up with a goal, uh, that you can have this this notion of, well, you know what he's trying to do. So why can't you just stop it? And in that period around sort of from 2000 to 2005, the number of times Thierry Henry would go onto the pitch and everyone knew what the, everyone could draw the quintessential Thierry Henry goal, but he just kept scoring it. He just kept scoring it. And you'd be a bit like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Surely footballers know what he wants to do. And you're like, that still doesn't mean you can stop them. And if every now and again, when it was Henry on the left, you know, every now and again, if you do go with your left foot and still score, Um, with like Salah scores against Manchester City with his right foot if every now and again you do score it with your weaker foot you know the Craig Cathcart against Watford slides across Salah because he remembers the goal from last week when he just pinged it with his right foot and then Salah makes him look like a dope but Cathcart's
0: thinking last week he he scored past Edison with with his right foot so he could just score now It's of escalating the fear factor, isn't it? It's escalating Mm -hmm. the fear factor. And then you've you've got more and more and more things to worry about within just the the scope of one player. And it is taking it to a different stratosphere, isn't it? You you said about Armory playing three different roles equally, sensationally, and and Salah's on that plane at the moment. I think you're right. That's the best comparison, I think, actually. Um, And that that is just different level. I think it may have been you guys. Somebody this week described them as out of this world class. (laughs) Rose Graham Potter.
3: No, it was great, Potter. It was, quite, oh, it was great, Potter. Of course, it was. It was yeah, Potter great Potter, No, but it's yeah. a great quote, and it shows. It shows, you know, the respect and and you know Potter will have ideas around this, but I think what I like about Potter as a manager, and he reminds me, of a couple of ways of Klopp around this as well. You know, Klopp's just in his press conference, and he was at pains to remind everyone that footballers are humans, as he often is. That you know, people make mistakes, and mistakes are made. You know, Potter and Klopp both know at all levels of football, you can have any plan you want in the world firstly, it still needs to be executed, but secondly, sometimes you can just come up against someone who on that day is able to just undo that plan. And I think that that's what, that's what Salah has been doing. You know, I don't think it's, I, I, I don't think for instance, Manchester City aren't amongst the best coached and drilled footballers on the planet. And yet there is, you're left dealing with the brilliance of this and trying to trying to find ways to mitigate it at most. And you know, I think that that when Potter uses that quote, it's a great quote. It's not world class. It's out of this world class, and he's absolutely spot on. You know, there's there's lots of great players, but at the moment, you know, Mo Salah looks amongst the greatest of them, and and I I don't. You know, I don't sympathise with defenders coming up against him. He gave Danny Rose a torrid time, a real torrid time. Uh, Really felt sorry for Danny Rose, but whilst obviously also simultaneously finding it funny uh, when he was playing for (laughs) Watford against him. But we've all been there at any level of football we've ever been at. The really strange thing is the idea that you've got the Spanish champions and the English champions and they're having that experience that we've all had at side where one lad's just too good. Mm-hmm. you know, a bit like that sort of shouldn't happen, you know, with the very elite of the game, yeah. this one lad's just too good. We can't live with him. And when you get to see it, and when you remember that, you know, the thing to always remember about all professional footballers is they're all better than the best player at your school. And then when you sort of multiply that by a hundred, yeah. you know, that and then there's one player who looks that much better than everyone else, it, it almost shouldn't be. And, but with, at the minute with Salah, it has been, and if it continues, then he can, he can power Liverpool to a, to a league and European Cup double. That's not to say that will happen. You know, there's, there's two great sides in, in this league along with us, I think. And there's also three or four other really good sides in Europe, by Munich, Paris Saint-Germain and, and Atletico Madrid look all look capable of stopping Liverpool along with City and Chelsea. You know, it's, Liverpool are not guaranteed the thing, but if you have the player who makes the best players for Manchester City and Atletico Madrid go, oh God, what do we do with this guy? Then it can only help.
2: Do you think that maybe the one not that's really weakness but given obviously you're so good going forward the one possible question mark is a little bit at the back at times with what happened against Brentford obviously yeah. and city obviously did score twice although i mean it is city so <laughs> it's pretty good oh. keeping us too
3: no, no. I think I think there's. I think Liverpool have skewed a tiny bit more towards attack yeah. so far this season. I think there's been a deliberate decision made. I think there's also the way the games have gone. I think crowds being back has suited Liverpool. Not just from the idea of oh it's Anfield and it's noisy. In fact, not even that. More that the emotional responses of other players, opposition players. You, you take eleven individuals and we can think of them as a team, but. Everyone will have a slightly different emotional reaction to the way in which a football match is happening, and I think that there'll be a lot of players. And I think this will wear off soon. But they've just effectively had a year and a half of playing an empty stadia. Mm. and I think what Liverpool Liverpool have been a bit more attacking. They've been a little bit more aggressive in the press than they were in nineteen twenty when they last won the title. Um, and I think that I think that we've sort of played on that a tiny little bit. And at some point, sides will sort of stay together a little bit more over the course of 90 minutes but I think so far Liverpool are looking to be a bit more front foot and of course you know to use Rafa Benitez's brilliant metaphor football is a blanket that cannot cover your head and your toes at once so you'll always end up with with a little bit of a gap somewhere however good you are and I think Liverpool have compromised a tiny little bit on that solidity um, through the spine of the side I think that at times overly front foot I think there's a high line and there's a really high line and Liverpool have sort of maybe been found wanting a little bit I also think Liverpool haven't been great at 2-0 in a number of games obviously Watford and United recently are two good examples and I think they're actually good at 2-0 against Man United they invite a bit of pressure on they withstand it United aren't that bad at 2-0 but I think that if you look back through a run of games we're not great against Brentford at 3-2 really if we're honest about it um, there's there's a couple of other little moments where I think Liverpool have almost got a bit carried away a tiny little bit. Atletico Madrid, it goes from 2-0 to 2-2 really quickly. Uh, like Milan, Liverpool go from 1-0 to 2-1 before the break really quickly. Um, so I think that there's little bits around Liverpool's game management that hasn't been quite right. That's been a bit emotional. Um, I don't think Liverpool have been great the which they were in 1920, the 35 to 45, but before half time, that 10-minute spell. I think there's been a couple of times where Liverpool have, I think because they've been a bit more at it in the first 30 minutes or so, the, the energy levels have begun to dip a tiny little bit. And I think that's something they'll be looking to improve on, uh, maybe ma- managing themselves a little bit better over the course of a half. But all this is splitting hairs at the moment. I mean, they've won three out of three in the Champions League group, including two away games, um, one of them against Atletico Madrid. They're unbeaten so far this season. They've played Chelsea, City and United at this stage. Um, Yep, the Chelsea and City games are at home and maybe just maybe at the end of the season, we we might look back on one of them as two points dropped. There is the Brentford thing in there, but I'll allow the idea that Brentford got up for a half-five and, you know, it was it was a bit of a new threat. No one's got the data yet on what Brentford are good at. It's been a pretty good start to the season. But if you're asking me, do, do I think Brighton can score at Anfield? I absolutely think they can. Um, and can they create a couple of good chances at Anfield? I absolutely think they can. Uh, it's down to Liverpool to stop them and obviously it's down to Liverpool to ensure with Mo Salah, but also with Firmino, Jota and Mane, that they do score more and create more.
0: Yeah, well, you you've, um, I listened to the um, preview segment on your latest free-to-air episode on the Anfield Wrap, and, um, you, yeah, you were complimentary about us, saying, you know, it's not to be taken too lightly. We can get at you, potentially. I think you predicted a 2-0 win on there, didn't you? Um, uh, struggle. For Liverpool. Yeah, a struggle. Because yeah. you've said we it's been close, hasn't it? A 1-0, a 2-1, and then, of course, the win for us yeah. last season.
3: Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm expecting it to be a hard game. I'm not I'm not at all sort of complacent about it. I think it's gonna be a struggle. I think there's a bit of it. I think the league's in a really funny place in that. I certainly think you can the sides who, if you take United out of it because they're weird, the sides other than United <laughs> who sit from fourth to twelfth, maybe even thirteenth or four, maybe if maybe even include Crystal Palace in this, which I know you won't like. But I think Palace so far this season looked like a proper footballing team for the first time in a while. Mm. I think you can take those sides and you can put them all in a big bag. And you could say, and you can use this phrase as a pejorative, which we tend to do in our lives, that they're all much of a muchness. But what I think about that is actually, this is a number aside, like Brighton's budget in in a world football sense is top 30. At the moment, it's a top 30 budget in terms of what Brighton are able to spend on players in terms of wages and fees. And if Brighton, which they do, keep getting decisions right, that means that that... You know, there's not the. I I think at the minute the gap between Brighton and West Ham, between Brighton and Arsenal, between Brighton and Tottenham, is as small as it's ever been. And in a couple of those instances, Brighton might actually be the better side. My point about this is to say, if Liverpool were playing Tottenham this weekend at Anfield, there'd be loads of people saying, "Could be tight. This could be a hard game." The fact is, if you're playing Brighton or Tottenham the much of the muchness of these two sides and that isn't a bad thing it's to praise Brighton to say that I would be, I am as concerned about Brighton coming to Anfield as I would be about Arsenal, Tottenham, West Ham at the moment and it might be by the end of the season that's not quite the case but right now I think this Brighton side they look as capable of turning up for 90 minutes frustrating and capitalising on Liverpool's frustration as any other side might be and at the minute you know if you said to me you've come back from the future and Brighton finish sixth this season I wouldn't go well this fellow's obviously a madman there's every chance Brighton finish sixth this season because there's every chance Brighton can get, get a pathway to 60 points um, and other sides
0: cards. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. Um, that would be nice. Sixth, we'd yeah. take that. A European tour. Yeah, that's exactly.
2: Nice. Oh, all that's sorts of your places to go to in Europa League next
0: season. Yeah. I mean, our head-to-head is actually fairly reasonable against you, all things considered. We've had five wins and nine draws, which is a bit more than I thought, actually. And um, we have lost the 19, of course. Um, I do think I actually agree with you. I think it'll be a 2-0 to Liverpool this weekend. That's my prediction. We'll get Peters in a moment. But um, in terms of um, thrashings, you've, you've got a couple of them out of your system uh, recently. We're, we're, we're taking that as a positive sign. Yeah, The Watford game and obviously the Man U, which, which you must have hated every minute, but, <laughs> I'm sure, Neil. Um, terrible. Especially the 65th minute. I don't know if you... Because I think you had to catch it on TV, didn't you? But it was uh, that scene where they showed the outside of the ground and loads of people flooding away on sixty-five was absolutely magnificent.
3: Oh, it was... I mean, the whole thing was a television masterstroke. The cutting from Ferguson to Dark Leash was glorious. Oh, yeah, uh, yes.
0: The, the, Someone's having fun in
3: the editing, weren't oh, they? Oh, the, the, the sheer <laughs> melodrama of... And I'd, I'd very rarely say this, not least because, you know, uh, for obviously for ancient rivalries and also recently, I think, you know... We've talked again about football finance and stuff like that. There's been times where he's where he's wound me up a little bit across the last twelve months or so. But honestly, we were going from pub to pub after the match, and there was there was a point where we were just walking into another boozer, and Gary Neville's still on the telly, having to explain what's just happened to Manchester United. I, I began to feel really sorry for it. Will someone get Gary off the telly? Will someone just let him go and have a drink and go home? Because good lord, you just made him do all the build up where they were winding him up like nobody's business before kickoff. Before even before I think even the kickoff of the West Ham game, they'd started winding. Them up, and then and then in the you know and then he has to do the prior thing to the match. Then Liverpool go one nil up in five minutes, and he stood next to Carragher, and he has to then do the commentary on the whole game, where he's beginning to adopt the tone of of, of one of the Attenboroughs during a state funeral. Towards the end of it, uh, as this game wears on. And then from there, they then put him into the studio and they make him do about another hour and a half, two and a half hours of, of Gary Neville somberly to camera with Sooness and Carragher absolutely laughing their heads off at him. Oh, I was, it got to the point where I was like, it was like reality TV. Can someone please just get Gary off the screen? <laughs> Sub him in for another United Pundit. That's all right, but just someone, someone save Gary from this, please.
0: Uh, pure cruelty and uh, you were saying off air as well our, our friend of the show as well John Gibbons your, your colleague yeah. um, was actually at both that and the Everton game at the weekend yeah he was at somehow we've matched
3: <laughs> he, he was at through, through, through a, a raffle that he won he was he, he was at uh, he, he was at Goodison and Old Trafford in the weekend where Brilliant. Everton are 2-1 up with 12 minutes to go and finish 5-2 and, and also, go-to.
2: to see hat-trick to a player they briefly had and must have barely scored They didn't score three goals even for them, did they?
3: He didn't score one, I don't think, or he got only one. The Josh King thing that I loved was Josh King did for the first, when he scored his first goal against them, he did muted celebrations. By the time he got to goal three, he had his top off. Uh, it was like the journey, the journey he went on. Uh, I mean, it doesn't genuinely, weekends do not get better than that from a Liverpool point of view. So John enjoyed it the most. But in general, listen, you know, it doesn't always work like that football. And and I think on on this game coming on Saturday, I, the one thing that I'm sort of nailing, trying to nail in all of our sort of content speaking to Liverpool supporters is I think Saturday's just going to be hard. And I think it's not going to be a lot of laughs. And I think Brighton are going to be really well set up. And I think there's going to be three or four Brighton players where Liverpool are going to have to accept as a period of time where they win their battle. Um, and I think there'll be a period of time in my 2-0, I think Liverpool will have to suffer a little bit at some point at 0-0 nil, nil, and 1-0 uh before sort of securing it. I I I feel as though, you know, it's it's gonna be not chastening as such, hopefully not chastening for Liverpool, but I think it's gonna be a really hard Saturday afternoon. Um, and then from there, I think it'll be one of those where you'll almost be glad. I'm glad I'm glad we've got them off the way for a while. Uh because you know it's it's not whilst it's nice to have a home game before having Atletico at home in the Champions League, I actually even think that having Brighton at home there's kind of homes before you've got to deal with Atletico in this division at the minute. I think it's going to be a really tough one.
2: I have to say, I don't have quite your, your faith in our defence. Last week, we decided to pretty much defend on the halfway line against Man City. Well, you're not going to do that one. again.
3: You're not going <laughs> to do that again. Really no hope
2: we don't try it again because, like, yeah, we're, we're out of sight at half time. And it was basically Dunk against Foden on the halfway line quite a bit of the time. And it's like, yeah, we need to actually defend a little bit deeper. I'm not I'm not advocating sitting on our six yard box, but. Yeah. When you need that much space behind the players with that much pace,
3: then uh yeah. Sometimes sometimes this happens where I in the, in this role, listen, I don't think you play teams like Liverpool. I think one of the one of the things that works with teams like Liverpool and City is that no one plays teams like Liverpool and City apart from four times a season. Brighton will come on for that against against City, they'll learn from it. You know, the videos are there, you want to explain stuff to your defenders, you want to do things a little bit differently. No one wants to get beat for one 0 home. So it's the easiest bit of coaching ever. How do? How does that not happen to us again? Please don't Gaffer. do that again. Yeah. <laughs> so don't do this. Don't do this. Let's do this instead. I think you know. Again, I'd rather if if we're if Liverpool and City are playing a, a team back to back, I'd much rather we played them first. I think um, we're much, playing much, you much back, to back, to back
2: later in the season as well, but I can't remember which order it's in. It might be the same order. Mm. Um, no,
3: you're
0: not. Nah.
2: <laughs> I can't remember. It might be the other way around. I don't know, but it's definitely. I, I remember the fact we're playing you, got you both two in a row yeah. both times. Of, the of course.
0: Season. We, we won both games last season we beat City 3-2 from 2-0 down um, I, I think maybe that's why we went 2-0 down on Saturday we thought we'd just try and emulate what happened last <laughs> time um, didn't work too well yeah, uh, it, really but it lasted to be two minutes didn't it so, yeah, so we yeah. then went
2: three down immediately three down time.
0: yeah um, but yeah um, so I, I don't think we we're, were ever going to emulate that result unfortunately we didn't I, I think the same again with the Liverpool game I'm going with you on a, on a 2-0 unfortunately I can't go up for the weekend Peter you are going up um, um, what's your yeah. prediction ahead of, ahead of your travel are you going to uh, make I, it full house of 2-0s?
2: I think it's going to be I think I think we might score actually, I think it might be 3-1 or even the 4-1 that um, happened last weekend again mainly because, yeah. and it could go either way, it could be that we play like we did again on Saturday for the first half and it's out of sight and then we kind of maybe improve second half and Liverpool take their foot off the gas with a Fletico coming up on West Ham, you're saying, next weekend, or it could be that we actually have a bit more of a game and, you know, we kind of, it's 2-0 and then 2-1 until quite late on and you guys get the, the late goals, yeah. to, to, to you know, make it safe or whatever. But either way, I think it'll end up 3-1. It'll just be obviously a lot more enjoyable to watch, if we keep it interesting for most of the game rather than being three down at half-time like like, Saturday.
0: Just before we let you go, Neil, I've got to ask you on one hot subject that's been going on at the moment. Um, There was a banner at the Palace um, game against Newcastle. Um, I'm wondering if... um, when you guys play them, there'll be something similar and we we've got them soon actually. What what's your take very briefly on on if you can do it briefly, on the Saudi Newcastle situation? I think I found How it deeply I found it deeply
3: sad and I still find it mm. deeply sad. I find that I understand, let's all be honest about this, I've defended some wrong things in the name of defending Liverpool football club, but I think this is this is a this should be a difficult one to rationally defend. And when you find yourself doing a lot of mental gymnastics, that's the point as a football supporter where you maybe need to breathe in and out for for, for a minute or two. So I found it really, I found that aspect of it really rather sad. Um, and I think that that's the, the the main part which which makes it difficult to be absolutely brutally clear. Ashley should should never have been should never been allowed to buy that football club and run it the way he did if football was better governed then you'd have to be clear on what your plan is for a football club and have to stick to it so you can buy a football club but you'd almost do it under license to a degree is something that i wouldn't mind seeing being be in place and there's a there's a little bit of a a model in a couple of countries germany being one of them around that way you you have to custodians yeah you have to publish your business plan to an extent Um, So where I understood the idea of Celebration was that they got rid of Ashley because the one thing that Ashley did brilliantly was drain Newcastle of all hope. And obviously what the idea of being bankrolled by Saudi Arabia offers is the idea where we can at some point, and I think it'll take longer and be harder than Newcastle supporters currently think, but at some point we can end up with the best players in the world and we can win trophies. And I understand that. I understand the idea of hope. But ultimately this this little game of ours, which we all love. And, you know, Peter is traveling all the way up across the country. Hopefully he's going to have a lovely time in Liverpool. Like we get to have a lovely time in Brighton. Um, It's about lovely times. And it's not about, um, you know, it's not about geopolitics and it's not about all the other bits and pieces. It should be, First and foremost, I understand there's a lot of money in the game now, and I understand the extent to which it and lots of other things are massive businesses, um, and have become massive businesses that at one time were almost like social entertainments. You know, there's lots of examples of this. Formula One is nothing but really expensive go karting, as an example. You know, you you can you can see this across a great many sports and a great many entertainments, but. This is, this is sad, and I think it shows a lot of shortcomings in a lot of processes, not just in the short term, but also in the longer term, as I said before about Ashley. So, you know, football in general has got to have a little think about it, but what's, what is a shame is to see a really partisan, aggressive, proud city end up having to perform, as I said before, mental gymnastics to defend what should be indefensible. Um, and the Adam Crafton piece in the athletic around LGBTQ uh, people in Saudi Arabia was was really really strong and really effective. Actually, I found it quite upsetting. And so I think I think we've just got to, where possible, try to divorce Newcastle supporters from it, and try to help Newcastle supporters divorce themselves. And I think pointing the finger and acting firstly as though all football support all the football supporters are white than white doesn't help. I think banners like the Crystal Palace one are a good thing because they keep certain things in the in the public eye. But the flip side of that is what we can't all do is act as though as though we've got to treat literally match go and Newcastle supporters as pariahs. What we've got to try and do with every opportunity is, is hold out an olive branch and say, you know, we've got to f- try and find a way for for you to come on to you to come over here rather than act as though no, you're now just still stuck with them forever. Because what all that'll do is harden attitudes and it'll actually make the The part of what underpins what the Saudi Arabians are trying to do by buying Newcastle, it'll actually make that easier for them. So let's not make it easier for them. Let's make it so that we can we can see ourselves as a football community as much as possible, and say that we don't want this sort of thing, and these are the reasons why, and this is what has to change.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of robust defences already going on from Newcastle fans, yeah. which you suspect is partly due to this us and them kind of mentality yeah. that started to manifest well, itself. Yeah. I mean, it
3: underpins all the football. All the football is. I mean, I, I was just laughing at Everton a few minutes ago. You know, all the football is uh, is an us versus them. You know, to yeah. an extent. You know, on Saturday it's us versus them. It's Liverpool versus Brighton. And for me, I'm the us. You're the them. But there's ways where we we can remember that. I'll say it again. You know, it is. There's a line on one of our shows that you know, it is a leisure activity. It is just a game. It's a leisure activity we want to enjoy as much as possible. It's a leisure activity that says something about where and who we are in an identity sense. It's got all these things that do underpin it, and it is important. But it is not as important as very basic human rights. Yeah. And I think that that is that is a you know that is a thing to always cling to.
0: Because I think that Adam Crafton article, if I'm not mistaken, is the one where he was speaking to people who are from repressed backgrounds yeah. in Saudi or who had were in Saudi, and he was trying to explain what the, uh, the what the delight was that they the Newcastle fans had got rid of Mike Ashley, what that was all about. And when he was saying it out loud to them, he, he found himself cringing. He yeah. said, "Well, you know, he's you know he's put Wonga on the shirts and he's slapped his his company name all over the place and didn't invest that much. It all sounds pretty hollow when you know the, the people being upset by them." being allowed to sports wash um, and yeah, no, no been committing atrocities.
2: No one suggested Mike Ashley with a great owner, but I do think mm. some of the delight from newcastle fans when the saudis took over was hmm. over the top considering who was yeah. taking over them. you know
3: yeah if... i
0: think i think it's it's a mix isn't it though as well i, I think in that same article or in, or in his interview on the podcast um, he said that there's a lot of people sort of tutting at those that are doing that yeah uh, walking up to the ground oh, yeah. and stuff like that we have to put it in perspective so i do think yeah, a, but, a number I'm of, new, saying, of newcastle fans sure are are people
2: who cringing watching newcastle as a result What's so. that they won't watch them until yeah, yeah
0: exactly, exactly that. That. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Neil, we better let you go. Otherwise, you're not going to have any for the rest of the day left. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you really, on. Actually. Always a pleasure exactly. as well. Yeah. Excellent. And maybe when you're down, I can't make it to Liverpool, but when you're down in Brighton, maybe go out for a bit. Absolutely. Next Excellent. March. Yes, indeed. We we'll look forward to it. And in the yeah. meantime, Peter, that wraps it up for this episode anyway. So we'll sign out in the usual way. Stand all full. Up the Albion.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.